Homestyle Green episode 104. This week we're talking net zero houses, pocket neighborhoods, cargo texture, and just generally architecture in harmony with the earth. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Homestyle Green podcast. This is the podcast all about inspiring people to make a better place to live. I'm Matthew Cutler-Welsh, the host and producer of the show, and it's my great pleasure to bring you another episode this week. This time we're going back stateside. We're going to with a beautiful Whidbey Island uh, to speak with Matthew Sweat from Taproot Architecture. And uh, before we get into that interview, just want to thank Nadora, who have been great supporters of the show and continue to do so. If you haven't checked them out already, then head over to energyefficientbuilding.co.nz or you can go to nadora.com. And uh, Nadora have been taking out a whole bunch of awards recently, uh, the ICF Building Awards over in the States. And that means they must be doing something right. It's uh, it's a great system if you're looking for an energy-efficient house or uh, a building. And it's also a pretty quick and uh, easy way of constructing as well. This week, I'm very excited to announce a new sponsor to the show. And this is, it's a name that has just keeps coming up. When we talk about home performance and more and more passive house does keep popping up even though that that's not by any means the aim of this show we're not an exclusively passive house show but it does keep coming up and one of the underlying features of passive house are things like air tightness and quality of construction and as you dive deeper into these aspects of designing and building one of the things that I've learned particularly now as I'm immersed in building science, is that it can actually be quite complicated. Well, especially once you start putting good levels of insulation into buildings, you uh, can run into problems, particularly with moisture, if you don't know what's going on. Because air will, will continue to flow, heat will flow, and vapor and moisture does weird things at these interfaces. So the new sponsor, and I'm very excited to have uh, them on board, are Proclimber. And Proclimber do such a good job of, I think anyway, making the complicated easy. Because it is quite complicated, the, this interface between uh, t extremes of temperature, the, the cold on the outside and, and the temp um, condition space on the inside, and then the, the moisture flows and the air flows in between. But not only that, what happens when you reverse the seasons and it, it, it's hot outside and, and then you actually air condition the, the space inside or it's cooler inside? What happens then? And that's where it does get complicated and that's where um, some of the products that Proclima have in their arsenal can make that easy for you. So check them out. If you haven't heard of ProClimate, then uh, definitely go have a look, proclimate.co.nz or proclimate.com, and you can find out heaps of information there about all their products. And I will also be getting Thomas from ProClimate on the show probably next week, actually, to talk about some of the, the work that they're involved in. So very excited to have them on the show. 
Anyway, let's get stuck into this week's interview with Matthew Sweat from Taproot Architecture. I'm very pleased to have Matthew Sweat on the show today from Langley in Washington. Is that, is that where you are, Matthew? Yeah, Langley's on Whidbey Island. How, what's, what's the, uh, we're in early, well, late February, early March by the time this comes out. What, what's the temperature where you are at the moment? Uh, there's light drizzle. I'd say, you know, we're here in um, English units, so it's about 50 degrees or so. Yeah. Fairly, fairly mild. Yeah. So you've got an, a practice there with your co-founder and your wife. And do you want to just tell, give us a little bit, a quick backstory about how the, the practice came about? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Taproot Architects is sort of our uh, co-creation. And my wife and I met in architecture school. She was going through the landscape design program and I went through the architecture program. Nice. And yeah, it was, it was a marriage of many, many things. And, yeah. Uh, very compatible worldviews. So um, we, we teamed up both in our own lives and then also professionally as well. Awesome. Uh, and I moved from Eugene, which is where I did my uh, education. And then my wife followed me a few years later when she finished her education. And we settled on Whidbey Island, which is this beautiful uh, location in the middle of the Puget Sound, just north of Seattle. So most people know where Seattle is. Um, and we're blessed with a very strong community uh, presence here in this this island community. So it's allowed me to do a lot more of this um, exploratory work in terms of inventive design and architecture. And, and then a lot of that has been collaborated with my wife in uh, her landscape profession. So we have some crossover between the architecture and the landscape yeah. component. But over the last few years, it's really evolved more to uh, primarily architecture and I'd say experimental types of things where there's a lot more hands-on um, projects as well as sort of the the classic architectural role. So have you always been in your own practice? Did you did you come straight out of uh, architecture school and, and, and start your own thing? I did a, a classic uh, internship with another architect here in the island, uh, Ross Chapin, who is really renowned for cottage housing. So wow. while I was with him, we we developed the pocket neighborhood concept, which went on to win something like the National EA Award for innovation and that kind of thing. So we've done a lot of work using this area as an incubator and then broadcasting those ideas outward. And I think that's how best ideas develop is you get a chance to really prototype them and test them where you have local influence and can really see the nuance of how they work and then share that with other communities as, as you have some wisdom to, to give. I've actually been to Puget Sound. I spent five months there working as an outward bound instructor and it's, it's the most amazing location. Um, how big is the community that you're in, Whid Whidbey Island? How, how many people are around there? Well, well, thank you. I mean, I think New Zealand's pretty amazing as well. I'm there are, there are some common, common places with those sounds. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so to answer your question, Whidbey Island is about 50 miles long. Um, it's kind of a long, skinny island that um, ambles around, so it's not really a straight piece of land. And it divides into about three different neighborhoods. There's the, the southern community, which is an outgrowth of kind of the 60s hippie movement that then became artists and now is a little bit more sophisticated but is very... Uh, rich culturally. And then the central district is more of a farming 
uh, community, but has very deep roots, goes way back. Mm-hmm. And then the north uh, portion of the island has the local Navy base. And so it largely facilitates and supports that industry there. So there's really three distinct communities, yeah. but from having the hippies to the Navy base, you get this really interesting cross-pollination. Yeah, of, that's, that's quite I mean, a, it, a, a difference. It is. And yet it's, it adds a lot of richness and vitality too, actually. So one of the risks, I guess, of living in such a small and beautiful place would be isolation. Um, and it, it certainly explains some of the uh, philosophies that you that you live and, and work by. How have you overcome that to, to reach out and then you know, obviously to, to be awarded um, and recognized by the AIA? You, you can't just be doing stuff in that local community and, and not really sharing it with the world. How have you avoided being isolated? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we we are on an island, but we're not that disconnected. It's only about a 15-minute ferry ride to get to the mainland. Yeah. So relativistically, it's pretty close. And then it's about a 30-minute drive to Seattle. So yeah. um, phys- physically, we're not that far away, but there's kind of a psychological um, independence that comes in island living uh, makes people feel safer and there's more of a cohesive sense of boundaries. So I think we have some of the best of both in that regard. Um, but you know, with the way the world is interconnected today with the internet and um, media and the exchange of ideas through social media and that type of thing, I think that you can really have a lot of um, capacity to share so long as your ideas have merit. Yeah. And, and clearly you've done work beyond just your local neighborhood. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So right now I'm working on a project in Hawaii. I'm working on, with a yoga retreat center up in Canada, um, uh, a house back in New York, um, rehabilitating a beautiful community center um, east of Seattle. So my work is, is pretty diverse in, in what I do. Um, but I really do like working close to home as well because you have such a rich relationship with your contractors and with your clients and you can visit the site on a regular basis. And yeah. Yeah. So that there's a level of attention that you can put, um, to local work. Now you've obviously been influenced a little bit by your surroundings and you've, you've been in that, you mentioned sustainability in your profile and your background quite a lot. Why do you do what you do? Is it what was, was there some main thing that you can point to that motivated you to be the type of architect that you are? Well, I think I'm, I'm certainly a mission driven person. Uh, and a lot of people are wired this way where just from a very young age, I understood that there was an importance to be a steward in the environment. Um, I grew up on a rural farm in Oregon, 50 acres and, um, sheep and back to the land parents and, so that upbringing certainly helped, but reinforced what was already there. Um, but I've just always had that understanding that we're a part of nature, you're not separate from it. And when I when I see the divergence that's happened in our society with our natural world, there's there's just this uh, profound desire to help bring it back into balance. So I think no matter what I was doing, whether it was architecture or writing or um, you know, software programming or whatever, I would still lean towards that philosophical direction. So when you look around and see things that concern you, your motivation is to 
not get disheartened by that. It's to um, feel a sense of responsibility to to change it. Absolutely. And I think that's a really empowering response. I mean, mm. so much of the the intellect likes to look at the facts and say, oh, this is you know dire circumstance. And um, and yet the heart is is motivated by opportunity. And you know, one of the analogies I like to think of is, you know, one of our high points of society was sending people to the moon and, you know, under a decade. And so that just kind of shows when we put our minds to something collectively as a society, we can do it in a remarkable amount of time. And something like being in harmony with the earth is such a, a core principle for every human being. If we've got, you know, six billion people working toward that goal, you know, really together, then what seems possible is um, would, would be off the charts from whatever we've seen before. So and I just think there's, yeah, go ahead. What's, what's architecture's role in all that? Well, I think architecture is part of the, the dream. Um, <clears throat> we have a, a society that has become very specialized. And in architecture, it's one of the unique professions where we're taught to be um, interconnected in the way that we think. So we think in terms of whole systems. Um, how does a human interrelate with an environment? How does that relate with the structure and the energy? And there's there's so many different layers that in the design field we're taught to overlap that we naturally have to think systemically. And I that's sort of the left brain way of describing it. But for the right brain, um, it's, it really means that we we incubate our ability to dream. And I think that in be able to visualize a future that's positive, we have to utilize that that systemic way of thinking or, or the dream, you know, whichever language works for you, um, to create a, a future worth moving toward. Um, you know, we're kind of obsessed with dystopia right now, but, um, you know, I think that's just because there's a vacuum. We haven't come up with a better dream to uh, aspire toward. Hmm. What are the main problems that you see with the standard way of building, designing, real estate in general? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think foremost, we have this philosophy that we are apart from nature. So uh -huh. we can sort of think of it as a commodity. Um, yeah. We don't think of a forest as a forest. We think of it as board feet of timber or something like that. And so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, handle all of the intrinsic costs associated with our decision-making. And we tend to do that with our houses too. We, we think of them as commodities, like I'm going to live there for five years and this is going to be the appreciative value. And that motivates a lot of people's decision-making. Yeah. So shifting that around to say, you know, I'm a human, I'm a part of the environment. I want to leave a place better than I find it. Um, it, it begins to shift all of your, uh, your thinking and your judgments and your value systems. And ma many people are doing this. Um, I see it all around me. Um, and as the society as a whole does it, then it starts to shift policy and uh, standards and, you know, how real estate commissions are assigned and taxation and all that kind of thing. So it can be a really powerful thing once there's a critical mass, but even on a small scale, it's pretty remarkable to see. How do you, combat that or, or change that mindset when the, the appreciable value in, in some locations is so huge. I mean, and, and is also completely disconnected from the quality of the house. 
Um, I know, for example, here in, in Auckland, we have one of the least affordable real estate markets in the world. And a million dollars will get you a very low quality house. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you introduce quality and health and um, the environmental design into that sort of marketplace? Well, that's, that's a challenging question because there's a lot of assumptions built into it. Uh-huh. I mean, what, one is that the value is there to begin with to try and buy into this idea of keeping up with the Joneses where, mm-hmm. you know, there's a million dollars just to sit at the table kind of a thing. And for a lot of these people though, it's not, it's not about keeping up with the Joneses. It, it's they in their mind. It's, it's getting on the ladder. It's, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just getting in the front door literally. Right. Right. Well, I, I guess, you know, just to extrapolate that to somewhere else like Southern California where yeah. it's a similar situation. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, if you're wise and you're looking ahead 20 years or even five to 10 years and you see that that we're heading into a 25 year long drought in um, Western California, Southwestern California, that there's going to be huge systemic shifts and much of that value is likely going to evaporate over that time, that time period. So, you know, if you're trying to do an environmental design in a place like that, you would certainly and you're committed to living there, you would certainly want to look ahead and plan for that incredible water um, challenge that's coming your way. Um, so to try and put that in the context, say, of Auckland, um, you know, some of the, the creative thinking is like, well, does everyone need a single-family house? Um, is there a group living environment that could be healthier? You know, And you can look to like a lot of traditional cultures where you might have three generations living in a house. And they're thereby sharing the expense of the mortgage, but also sharing the skill sets, say the grandparents with the young children and how those um, resources become useful to one another. Yeah. You know, in the modern day where a lot of, at least here in the U.S., a lot of families are fracturing and you have um, a different family structure. Some of those familiar ties are, are personally selected rather than just by birth, but it can be the same same concept where we we create a, a community around us rather than each person trying to have their own personal environment. You mentioned pocket communities before. For the people that haven't heard that term before, what, what is that? Well, Ross liked to call it co-housing without the meetings. and Co-housing without meetings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> without the politics. Without the politics as well. Well, you can't totally get away from that because it is still, still a small neighborhood. But yeah. the idea is that there's a – there's a critical mass whereby a community has enough people to be rich, but not so many that you are uh, feel like there's anonymity. So there's a nice balance and there's a variety of different studies. Um, I don't recall the facts off the top of my head exactly, but you know, it's something like more than six households and less than 30. And uh-huh. um, <clears throat> so as you get smaller than that, it's hard for a community to sustain itself because you just have individual uh, relationships that can be more political and larger, again, that in anonymity. So pocket neighborhoods is this idea that people still own their own homes. Um, so it caters to the, the Western mind and the, the, certainly the approach in the U.S. where you can have your own property. Yep. But the houses tend to be quite small, um, maybe 600 to 1,000 square feet. And then they are clustered in 
some kind of a common relationship, usually around a common courtyard, uh, often with a common house. Mm -hmm. And yet the house is, the common house is really more of a meeting room, a space for barbecues, picnics, um, maybe large family reunions or something like that, where you can't fit those number of people in your own residence. Yep. And then it's typically like a condominium ownership where you um, can do whatever you want within your home, but the outside has some sort of a, an agreement amongst all the other homeowners so that there is a cohesive kind of neighborhood fabric. Yeah. So the neat thing about that concept is it can infill into um, sites within existing cities and areas um, to create these cohesive neighborhoods in uh, and amongst the existing urban fabric. So, so it's retrofitable into an existing s- suburbia. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you've got a few examples of where you've actually um, helped develop uh, guidelines to, to, uh, for other organizations to achieve pocket neighborhoods. Yeah. So, so Ross took that further and, and basically worked with the city of Langley, which again, I was talking about how in local communities you can have these incubational areas where you can try a, things and see if they work and if they do then you can share them elsewhere so that's what we did with the city of langley they were very amenable to the idea of of trying some of this yeah so we had a provisional zoning code which allowed for the pocket neighborhood and as the neighbors saw that it actually wasn't a terrifying thing it was is actually a positive thing then we were able to convince other uh jurisdictions planning agencies for the most part or cities um to go ahead and adopt that ordinance and it's been quite successful. Uh, you know, now it's basically become one of the tools that planners can use all over the country uh, to add density and kind of enrich the urban fabric of their communities. Right. So you're solving their planning problems as well, uh, as well as giving an alternative creative solution to uh, families. Absolutely. And we're also creating an opportunity for smaller home sizes. Yeah. Uh, because so many of the families now are single parents or individuals. We don't need a 2,500 square foot house, you know, for one to two people. So, and that is something that America, Australia, and New Zealand all have in common. We're in the top, Mm -hmm. top three in the world, Mm -hmm. (laughs) respectively of the uh, largest house uh, floor areas for our, for our household size. And we just keep, we just love big houses. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you've done uh, some other experiments in, or, or some experience in other work. Uh, net zero is pretty trendy at the moment. What's your experience been with net zero housing? Well, I just finished a house uh, about a year ago. In fact, it's going to be in fine home building this summer. Uh, we're doing a really interesting article on it. Yep. Um, but the the idea there was it was marrying a, a net zero house with a historic community. And so there's a really interesting dynamic between trying to do both of those, use the technology side toward the, uh, the high performance, but then also the uh, sensitivity to a historic context. As when well. you say historic, what do you, how old do you mean? Well, this is the West coast, right? So, you know, it's like Australia, not, not all of it is very old. But uh, but there's the, still a heritage element. Absolutely. It's in the town of Coopville, which is in the central part of Whidbey. And Coopville is within the Eby's Landing National Historic Reserve. So the entire town is protected, essentially. And it's the second oldest 
uh, town in Washington State. So as far as we're concerned, it, it does have quite a bit of historic um, um, lineage in its So past. was this house a, a renovation of an existing property or did, was it a new construction that had to fit in with the local design? Well, it's some of both. Uh, and my client is really sympathetic with my desires for the you know, sustainable um, planet. Yeah. And so it's an infill site. It's it's just about three blocks from the core of the downtown. And it did have a house and a cottage on it, but they um, they really you know, were in total disrepair. They, they were flat-topped, vinyl-clad, um, white boxes in this historic neighborhood. They really... They were built in the 1940s, but they just didn't fit with the neighborhood at all. Right, right. And, uh, we considered trying to save them, but they were in such such disrepair that all we were really able to save was the foundation system. So they're essentially new structures. Yeah, right, right. And what's your definition of net zero? Well, net zero is, is a building that basically provides as much resource as it consumes. Yep. So. It, that can be applied to water, can be applied to electricity. In this case, or typically it's it's power, electricity that is um, what people consider. And that was true here. Uh, and uh, so are they grid connected as well? It is grid connected. It's got a five kilowatt PV array. Um, right. And a ground source heat pump, which was quite interesting to fit into an urban lot you know, where the the amount of... Spatial area is limited. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's a lot of layers to it. I and mean, that's just, that's interesting as well. Five kilowatts is not a huge um, PV system. No, and, it's not. And yet that's enough for it to be uh, net zero. Yeah. We live in a fairly mild climate, and uh, all the water heating as well as all the spatial heating um, is through that, that coefficient of – it's over four – you know, so it produces four times as much heat for the amount of electricity it takes to drive the unit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a high amount of thermal mass, so it carries it through the through the diurnal cycle, the night and day. So there's there's a lot of subtle technologies at work. I mean, I, yeah. if you want to get into it, you can read the article. I think it's coming out in June. Yeah, um, well, I'll be sure to. If if it's not up by the time this comes out, we'll we'll sure to uh, update it when it does come out. Just want to dive into the, the the geeky details just for one moment because I know some mm-hmm. people will be interested. You mentioned um, ground source heat pump, so that's for your space heating. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your uh, water heating? Uh, again, the water heating is also from the ground source right uh, boiler system. So all of the heating comes from that. So you've chosen to run just PV on the roof and use mm-hmm. that electricity to gener- uh, to go through a heat pump rather than using solar uh, thermal hot water? Yeah, yeah. It's Because we get a consistent amount of heat then from the unit year-round, yeah. which is a lot easier to design around than trying to accommodate the peak summer versus the, the lower winter yeah. yield. Yeah, it does seem to be uh, a, a trend as PV becomes more and more available. Mm-hmm. Um, cargo texture, what is that? Well, cargo texture is, is one of the terms that's used for reusing shipping containers for architecture. Ah, right. And, you know, we've got millions of these things that are reaching the end of their service life. You know, they only last about 25 years or so in circulation due to the 
corrosion of the salt on the oceans. Yeah. I imagine and they get bashed around a fair bit too. They do. Exactly. Yeah. They get some dents and dings in them. Um, and so they end up just generally piling up in the ports. And since we have a trade imbalance between say China and the United States, it's probably true, you know, around much of the world. Yeah. The, the older containers end up just piling up in the ports. Right. Um, Cause there are more coming in than going out. Exactly. And so they end up shipping only the new ones back and leaving the older ones here. And it's become a bit of an issue because it actually costs more to ship the empty container back, say, to China to melt it down to reuse the steel uh, within kind of that fabrication process than the container is worth. And so, when you when you step back and look at that, that you realize how stupid that is to, to ship absolutely. a big <laughs> block of air back uh, so it can be melted down and made into something which we're probably going to ship back in some other form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it really draws your attention to the reality of the trade imbalance, you know, how this has real physical consequences too. It's yeah. not just on paper. Uh, so, you know, we live real close to Seattle, Port City, and so this problem happens there as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very obvious around the – because you've got a major shipping channel uh, coming right up past um, uh, uh, Whidbey Island there. We do. So one of the remarkable things about shipping containers is they're made out of core 10 steel, which is a self-healing – steel very uh very high grade really and uh you have this amazing product that you can work with as a as a building material and so how do you do that and that's one of the things i've been considering uh, you see a lot of these used in very industrial design um and uh, so we live in more of a rural community so i thought about how it might fit here rather than an urban context and Yet much of the use of shipping containers, there's a real question in my mind how cost-effective it is. Yeah. Uh, because when you're using it for, say, an urban or a, a really high-end house, you end up building a bunch of modules together, which means you end up cutting out the structural walls and welding in uh, steel beams and that type of thing. And, and that's actually fairly expensive on a construction um, construction side yeah those those are highly skilled trade trade workers yeah so my my personal experiment was to put one here on my property and i discovered that a 40-foot shipping container essentially costs the same as a 20-foot shipping container it's like 200 dollars more wow Uh, so you get the second half free basically (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and yet a 40-foot deep building that's eight feet wide is is pretty difficult to use so yeah, because it's a very long, skinny room. Very long, skinny, and and there's only a door at one end, right? So, <laughs> yeah, you know, going into the other side, it's like the whole thing becomes a hallway, basically. Yeah. So um, over the course of the summer, I cut a hole through the center of it, through both sides of the center, so basically a portal through it, and then built in some interior walls that allow access to both ends. So there's now two rooms on either end of the shipping container. And one thing that people aren't really all that aware of is that shipping containers are steel. So when your temperature fluctuates, you get condensation, at least if you're in a humid climate like Mm -hmm. we are. And if you're actually trying to use this as some kind of habitation, that condensation will will cause real mold and mildew problems. Mm. So you can solve that by, by applying a, a small layer of closed cell rigid foam to the interior or the exterior, either one, depending on how you're cladding it. 
But in my case, I chose to leave the exterior as the, the finish kind of industrial siding since it's so durable. Right. So I added about three quarters of an inch of uh, closed cell foam, which you can get just as a standard, you know, kit. You don't actually have to have any advanced equipment. Um, and that, you know, will immediately take care of that problem. Interesting. And, then so does that, it, how does it take ahead. care of the condensation? Because the outside's still going to fluctuate uh, with the uh, ambient temperature. Yes, it will. Um, but the way condensation works is you hit the dew point at a certain temperature. Mm-hmm. And so that steel is going to get really, really cold. And your air temperature is whatever temperature it's able to hold the latent humidity. Otherwise, it would just condense out on, on any surface. Yeah. So somewhere between the air temperature and that super cold steel temperature is your dew point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is you – know, it's interesting to look this up from a building science standpoint because a lot of people don't understand this, this yeah. technology. But if you can prevent the moist-laden air from getting to that point in the thermal envelope where condensation occurs, then condensation simply won't occur. Yeah. Um, so by using a closed cell foam versus, say, an open cell foam or cellulose or, or fiberglass or any of those other insulations that are air permeable, um, you can prevent the, uh, the moisture from getting to that two-point and causing condensation. So that means that your closed cell foam layer needs to be completely continuous. It does, right. And that's why a spray foam is preferred because it bonds directly to the metal so there's there's no voids um, and it does give you a, a continuous surface, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously you you have good attention to detail. Have you put some windows in? Uh, in this particular building, I've not. Um, each of the bays ends up being about fourteen feet long, and I've designed it so that there's actually light coming in from both ends of both rooms, right? Um, which leaves all of the interior walls available for utility. I use half of it for a yoga space and half of it for a workshop. And um, it's proved to be very adaptable. The yoga nice. space had been a garden storage area, and, and it could be any number of things. Do you have some uh, photos of it? Uh, there are some photos on our website, uh, www.taproot.us. Um, and I think I've, I've done some blog information about how to go about building with these technologies as well. Right. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll be sure to uh, to link that up. Um, and, and you've done some other work uh, with Tiny House, which has caught the attention of the likes of uh, um, Kawasaki and, and a bunch of other people for some reason recently. It seems to be mm-hmm. a bit of a, a trend at the moment, the Tiny House movement. Absolutely, yeah. Which is, yeah, which is all good. It is. Well, I think it really connects with all of our sense of being able to have a home and have a sense of financial independence. Yeah. 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 Cause when we look at mortgages, they tend to be so overwhelming and it's nice to have some flexibility in our lives that way. And I, I tend to think of tiny houses as maybe not being completely practical for everyone, but what they do do is, is sort of drag the industry in a certain direction and show what's possible. So even if you don't go to that extreme, then for the mainstream, it might offer just an alternative to say, well, perhaps I don't need the 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 four bedroom, three ensuite, uh, two lounge yeah, room exactly. house. Yeah, they you help know. carry the conversation a little further that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, I think that they are a transitional housing. Yeah, uh, and yet we we need to address that 
in society, we, we really need a, a significant amount of transitional housing because many of our lives are in flux. Yeah. Um, and I like the, the sense that you can take it with you. You know, a lot of yeah. these are in trades and that kind of a thing. Yeah, someone got wheels. So if you needed to move to a different state for a job or something like that, you could, you know, take your house, um, which, you know, adds a nice sense of cohesiveness in your life. Mm-hmm. You have done so much with your practice, Matthew, and, and, and looking at different aspects. I mean, you, at one moment you, you're playing around with shipping containers. You've also had experience with straw bale. Um, and then you're right at the forefront of, of PV and, and net zero energy as well. So pretty exciting stuff and, and lots of people to, to look at. Um, and we could spend a lot of time diving into those. What, though, if if someone out there is looking at uh, creating a new home for themselves or renovating an existing house, what would be your sort of top three recommendations for, for people to get started on that journey? Well, Tying back to the beginning of our conversation, I think that stewardship is is one of the themes that I'm really um, keen on these days. I mean, I think it's it's a very long term way of thinking, and so I think the people listening to this program ought to consider how they themselves can be stewards. Yep, and that can mean making decisions that affect, let's say, the person that owns this house after you do, um, or thinking beyond just your own needs in this moment in time. Uh-huh. One example of that is, is this net zero house up in Coopville. You know, my client's an able-bodied man, you know, in his prime, but I designed a, an access ramp as the primary entry into the house. Yeah, right. Because you can just have a friend who's in a wheelchair that yep. comes over, or you can break your leg one, yeah. one winter. So well, you just can that, have kids. Or you can have kids, right? You know, who you know want to ride their bikes up and down. Yeah, or like that. yeah. So or we tend be, to think. Or want uh, to be carried these, everywhere. A lot of these things, I think, uh, people resist from a like a sense of mortality. Yep. You know, I don't want to be associated with sort of old oldness, and yet we kind of remove the chance to be gracious towards our elders, and um, and so I, I think there's something about having a bigger viewpoint that it's not only that we become stewards of say a house, but I think we become more full humans. You know, we become more satisfied because our attention's just not on our own. some micro problems and issues, but we're, we're bigger yeah. when we do things like that. So that, that's one of my top three, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the other is, I'm not sure how I would phrase this, because I think the technology side of it is really well understood. Um, so typically I would put like energy performance up there as a top three, but for purposes of this conversation, I, I really like to bring the idea of awareness in architecture. <clears throat> there's, there's something about space that can um, change the way that you behave and the way that you experience your, your environment. And I think about this in terms of like devotional societies where there might be a shrine at the, at the front door, an altar, um, a very low entry way into the house where you have to duck through and humble yourself to, to arrive. There's so many ways in which you I've can... I've never thought of a, a, a low entrance in that way. Oh, absolutely. It was, you know, the Japanese bathhouse or the tea house would often be that way, um, you know, where they'd have their... Their um, entry low. 
but there, you know, that's true in huts and, you know, teepees and, you yeah. know, um, indigenous societies all throughout as well. So, you know, there's the sense that we modify our habitual behavior in a way that requires us to be more aware and more attenuated to our circumstances. Which just looking, I just think I'm thinking about that because I'm struck by that image. Uh, the, the trend is is to hire studs. You have two two seven meter um, stud heights and these massive full height doors, which sort of have a a sense of grandeur about the entrance, particularly the front entrance of the house. And it's completely the opposite of of that sort of philosophy, isn't it? Well, it is, and it also misunderstands architecture, I think, because. That's coming from a very ego-driven standpoint totally. of trying to impress. Especially if you have a bunch of fake columns outside that too. <laughs> exactly. But, but what a lot of people don't realize is, uh, is there's the contrast in architecture that make things dramatic. So if you have a 12-foot a ceiling, but you have a four-foot entry, yeah. you've got this tremendous drama, but you actually have a relatively modest scale house. Um, you know, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright would use that all the time because he was a short guy. Yeah. He would always have these, these short entries yeah, yeah. and then these taller spaces. Huh. So you can achieve a lot of that same impressiveness if you want, just by contrasting things. Better for uh, heat loss too. Exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I think that would be number two yep. um, would be that awareness of space and you know, bringing that kind of mindfulness into your environments as you create them or modify them, either one. Yep. Um, and then, um, what would be about the top third? Yeah, I, I think for me, it's it's related to those other two, and it's being aware of your place in the whole. Um, so it's it's not trying to be better than or different than, but accept your place in society in a way to strengthen it, to make it healthier, richer. Um, you know, example of that might be on the front of your property, adding a bench for the people that are walking by on the street, for instance, mm. or um, to check in on your neighbor who may be elderly. It's, it's more of a, of a way of life as experienced through your architecture. And those are things that you can either support or diminish. You know, if you put the wall up in front of yeah. your whole property, then you cut that, that connection off. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I see that around here all the time is one of the first things that after the for sale sign has come down, the six foot fence goes up. Mm -hmm, exactly. One of the first sort of renovations that people do. But there are all sorts that, of justifications, yeah, I guess, to, to keep their kids safe or, or whatever. I don't know what it is, but I, that's actually one of the contrasts that I see between uh, suburbia in New Zealand and, and, and suburbia in Australia and also in America. I remember being um, in Anacortes, actually, and and one of the things that struck me was the, the lack of fences between the sections, mm -hmm. and I really liked it. Yeah, I do too. Uh, you know, it, it promotes that neighborhood conversation yeah. um, where we can, you know, really have a dialogue where we can share more openly. You know, it's, it's, it's okay to have boundaries. Boundaries are quite healthy, but they should be permeable so that you can migrate through and back and be able to uh, interlate. And in fact, they should encourage that. I mean, one of the things around sustainability that we often 
don't pay attention to is the interdependence of all things. Mm-hmm. And at, at some point in our lives, we all need help and we're all able to offer help. And so there's a wonderfulness to, to incubating that and supporting that kind of behavior. Yeah. And I think it makes us happier and, and healthier people too. Um, so I really like that general philosophy there of your third point is basically asking the question, how can this building contribute positively to the community and to the environment around rather than just being something for me to generate wealth or, or something that's only going to benefit me in the short term? And I think that's a, it's a completely different way of looking at, at real estate, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and it makes, it makes us part of the solution rather than either part of the problem or even just neutral because we're at a place now where I don't think neutral is good enough for any of us. Mm. We, we need to, w- whatever our context is, whatever our environment is, we need to be contributing something positive to, um, to rebalance our relationship with each other and with nature. Both. Nice. Um, Matthew, I could talk about some of this stuff for a lot longer. We haven't even dived into uh, lead and uh, and some of those other things that you've been involved with. Um, you've got a, gr- a great website that's very easy to navigate around, uh, which you mentioned before, taproot.us. Is that uh, the best place for people to find you? Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously, there's only a fraction of what is happening there kind of in the digital domain, but in terms of getting a flavor or – if people are wanting to contact me for additional information, that's a good starting point uh, to for discovery. Awesome. Any any final uh, comments or closing advice for people who might be starting their journey? Oh, I could go on and on. Thank <laughs> you. I <laughs> right now I'm really fascinated with uh, sound current um, and how that uh, affects how we experience architecture. Yeah. You know, some spaces have. A, a harmonic resonance that will enhance sound waves. And you, you would see these in temples and, um, and there's no reason why we can't bring that into our conventional architecture as well. Nice. So that's one of the current things that I'm, I'm quite interested in and in, in following up on. Um, I think as people are following their own journeys, my, my thinking and advice on that is just to make sure that they measure their, um, their minds with their hearts to, that we have a, an incredible intelligence available to us from both sides of our psyche. And um, we shouldn't diminish the things that we feel that we don't understand because they're just as important as the things that we understand. Um, so I just really encourage people to be true to um, true to their hearts as they go into their journey. That is uh, very sound advice, I think. And it comes back to my, um, encouragement, I guess, that I uh, try and get people to to be confident about why they're building and, and what the purpose of their, their home is before they go and uh, speak to too many people because it, the chances are they'll get swayed into things if they're not ready for that <laughs> or, or, or grounded in some sort of objective. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's hard when you're working with professionals who – may know a fair bit more technically, but yeah. may not necessarily have the same value structure that you do. And yeah. so it's very key to um, have your core intentions clearly spelled out so that you can evaluate whether you're accomplishing them or not. Nice. It's been great talking with you, Matthew. I really appreciate your time. 
and uh, we will put those your website up and so people can contact with you through there. And I um, look forward to staying in touch. Well, thank you, Matthew. I will look you up next time in New Zealand. Absolutely. And well, next time I'm back in Anacortes, so I'll have to uh, swing by. Yeah, I do, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Matthew. Matthew Sweat there from Taproot Architecture. And you can find out more about Taproot at taproot.us. Nice and simple. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that. And don't forget to check out nudura.com. Thank you very much to them for sponsoring Homestyle Green and also our great new sponsors to the show, ProClimber. You can find them and all the information about their fantastic products, ProClimber.com. Or if you want the more local versions, you can head over to ProClimber.com.au for Australia, ProClimber.co.nz for New Zealand. And in fact, if you just go to ProClimber.com, you can find all their international sites wherever you are. Thank you very much. I'm Matthew Cutler-Welsh. Tune in again next week for another episode of Homestyle Green. Until then, go make a better place to live.